0: Hello again, everyone. It's Thomas, and uh, today, tonight, I'm going to be covering Bavink, The Christian Family, Chapter Two. Um, I'm kinda tired, I'll admit that up front, but you know, when you got five little kids and a job and other pressing matters in life, uh, sometimes you have to record when you can if you ever want to get something done so here we are um, i hope my mind is clear enough uh, this is kind of a short chapter but i, I think a difficult one um, in so far as there's a few things i think bovink says that i would disagree with or at least not maybe say we can know with certainty it doesn't really change the overall uh teaching uh, i don't think that bovink is putting forward here Uh, It's just kind of maybe delving into some speculations, which, um, you know, I don't think are necessary. Uh, And so, well, you'll see when we get into it here a little bit. This chapter is called The Disruption of the Family, so it's having to do with the fall of man, how that, what is the fallout of the fall, basically? How does that affect the marital relationship, the Christian family? And so on and so forth. So he begins talking about sin and its consequences for woman and for man. He says, The sin for which man, shortly after his creation, rendered himself culpable, affected the family in no small measure. The third chapter of Genesis tells us that the woman was tempted first. From this fact, together with the fact that Eve was created after Adam, so both of those together, Paul drew the conclusion in 1 Timothy 2, uh, 12 and 4, 3, 14, 1 Corinthians 14, 34, that the woman may not serve as a teacher within the church and may not rule over the man. So note right away here that this is rooted in creation, pre-fall, as well as because of the fall and the way that man fell. Um, Right? Eve was created after Adam to be a helpmeet. She's under his authority. He is to be the teacher and the leader in the home and the church and by and large in society as well. Um, So this is a creational reality, a creational reality ordinance a creation ordinance it's not uh, something that is merely a result of the fall you can't say well women being uh, under the authority of man and not able to be a teacher or preacher that was only a reality due to sin and how eve fell and you say well what would be the problem in believing that well one it's just not biblical and two it kind of opens more doors for women to be preachers now, right? Some may say, but now we're a new creation in Christ. There's neither male nor female, uh, slave nor free, et cetera, et cetera. So now that we're redeemed in Christ and we're on our way to glory and glory would again be free from sin, then maybe now there is a place now that Christ has come for women teachers again as a sign of our redemption and things being made new again. I think some are still arguing that way wrongly, um, Regardless, you know, looking at Eve as your telos, looking at heaven as a place where, you know, they they, they think it somehow means apparently that gender distinctions are even further eviscerated um, or whatever the case may be. And since we're on that way to that path now, we're walking the road of righteousness for 2000 years since Christ has come, you know, maybe that trajectory should mean that there's more room for women to do more things uh, by way of teaching and preaching and so on. Now, look, I fundamentally, I disagree with that kind of reasoning. Um, But from a more practical standpoint, by which I mean the fact that as technology and comforts, creature comforts advance, as man takes dominion over the earth and... You know, we don't all have to work in a field 12, 14, 15, 16 hours a day. Um, The fact that there is more free time, more leisure time, if you want to put it like that, or just more time to um, do other things than perhaps menial, backbreaking labor for the man and the woman, uh, that may mean that there's more opportunities for women to express their femininity and their calling in a greater variety of ways but that still doesn't somehow get you to women being teachers and preachers right it doesn't allow them to cross over into doing what a man is called to do by God nor does it allow a man to cross over into what a woman is called to do now the 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 two may become a little bit less distinguishable because of our creature comforts uh, and open up certain temptations certainly Um, but we should still receive the advancements that we have in life with thanksgiving. And, and and yet, remember, we are called as men to be men, and as women to be women, as husbands to be husbands, and wives to be wives, and so on and so forth. Okay, um, let's continue with Bavink. So far, so good. Naturally, the apostle does not mean to suggest thereby that Adam did not sin and was not culpable. For in Romans 5.12, he states that the one man, Adam, was responsible for all the sin and death in the world. And why Adam and not Eve? Because Adam is the federal head. He's the representative. And it was fitting that the man be the head. Also why it's fitting that our Redeemer is a man and not a woman, that man Christ Jesus, the head of all those who are redeemed in, in, in the Lord. I mean, that's not the only reason it's fitting that God the Son became a man and not a woman, but it's certainly one of them. Um... Let's see, all people died in Adam on account of his sin, 1 Corinthians 15, 22. Paul did intend to say, however, that it was the woman who at the very beginning was the first to be tempted by the serpent, the first to fall personally for herself. She was the first to become guilty of unbelief toward God and her husband, of gullibility toward the tempter. And her husband weakened in his faith and trust because his wife tempted him and related to him as a teacher. Right? So the husband, uh, who's supposed to be the head and the leader, uh, is, you know, allowing the wife to draw near to the forbidden fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And the serpent's there. Satan is in the serpent and tempting her. And he is not there, Adam, that is, to... Um, protect her and guard her and keep the garden safe, right? That's his, part of his calling, is to tend the garden to keep the garden and to guard the garden. And so part of that, you would assume, is any sort of foreign invader protecting from that. Now, of course, this is not a fallen world yet, but clearly temptation could come because it did. <laughs> and you know, Adam should have been on guard. Um, Adam is finite. I'm not obviously saying that... It's possible even in a pre-fall world for a man to always, always, always be around, you know, his wife and kids or any potential Satan, the tempter to, you know, come into the human stage and try to cast the world, plunge the world into sin. Um, but it does say something about uh, a lack of of uh, closely guarding his wife. And then when he found out what did happen, to just take the fruit and eat it as well, certainly not what Adam was supposed to do. Um. And the wife here, Eve, tempts Adam, and it says, and related to him as a teacher. Uh, now, my head is a little foggy. I'm not sure. I think Bob Inc is saying that um, because the husband weakened in his faith and trust, uh, that he did weaken in faith and trust because his wife tempted him and related to him as a teacher. I think Bob Inc is saying that the wife took on the role of a teacher here, right? You know, take and eat, this is good. You know, listen here, Adam, I'm the new boss, that kind of thing. Adam listened to her rather than listening to God and then exercising his God-given, ordained authority over his wife to say, no, Eve, what you've done is wrong. So it goes on to say, Adam did not fall in the same way that Eve fell. Now this is where I, you know, I think this is a little bit speculative. I mean, some of it is, I guess, apparent generally but maybe goes beyond what we can say with certainty from scripture but he says eve fell in terms of covetousness she fell because she believed that eating the fruit would make her like god adam fell however because his love for his wife surpassed his love for god now again if that was further elaborated upon you know maybe i would agree completely uh maybe not um I certainly think there's a difference in how they fell the temptation came differently right for Eve it came from the snake from the serpent for Adam it came firstly at least you could say directly through through Eve um, and Adam did listen to Eve when he should not have now whether that was really born out of a love a greater love for his wife than for God I you know I don't know uh, he certainly listened to Eve over God but you know maybe he too desired knew what the fruit of the tree of knowledge a good Uh, knowledge of good and evil was all about right and said hey i'd like to have that sort of freedom as well um and if he really loved his wife he would not have taken the fruit right he would have you know some have even said um adam his righteous choice there should have been to offer himself Right, as a sacrifice. You lay down your life, Scripture says, for your spouse, for your wife. And here Adam should have offered himself to the Lord in place of Eve, as Christ would do for his bride, uh, to redeem her from her sins. You know, now that's speculation as well. Um and the first time I heard that, I believe, it was from Doctor Morales in Bible College. And at the time I thought it was just bonkers, but the more I think about it, the more it makes some sense. Now, whether or not that would have been a, an acceptable sacrifice, can one person, you know, forever be punished in hell in the place of another? Uh, I don't know. I certainly don't think that Adam could have ever gotten it out of God's wrath and punishment in that situation. And that was my concern and my thinking is okay, you know, if we do love God first and foremost, and, and we should, should we really wish to be eternally separated and, and under his wrath? Uh, for the sake of our spouse. But again, that's these. this is all speculation, okay? And I don't want to spend time in needless speculation and doubtful things uh, and just focus on the real stuff here, the important stuff here, which is that Eve listened to the serpent rather than her husband when she should have listened to her husband. Her husband should have stepped in and exercised the authority and listened to what God had said rather than letting Eve uh, lead him astray and basically teach him she became if you will the temptress to him whereas the serpent was the tempter to to eve and there's probably even more you could make of that as well but again i don't want to go too far beyond the bounds of you know what's what's clear here um okay i don't want to read this whole thing but uh of bovink here so let me skip around a little bit um well, yeah, this is important, so I'll read this. For The first sin thus immediately involved a reversal within the family order, and I agree with that completely. Rather than following her husband, the wife took the lead. Rather than being obedient, she took charge. Rather than being a helpmeet for him, she assumed the roles of mistress and regent, right? Uh, leader or king or whatever. Adam and Eve sinned not only as individuals, as persons, but they sinned also as husband and wife, right? They sinned in their... Uh, uh, roles as husband and as wife, as father and mother as well. They were playing with their own destiny, with the destiny of their family, and with the destiny of the entire human race. Tragic. But they're not victims. They're guilty. They're culpable. And we see this kind of sin today. It's tragic. It's sad. And it is an element of pitiableness, but they're not victims when they do this sin. They are wicked and vile. And dangerous, and it needs to be snuffed out, okay it goes on, bovin says that uh, that became manifest immediately in the terrible consequences of their sin. The first manifestation of guilt came to expression in a sense of shame. Their eyes were opened at that point, and they became aware that they were naked. Shame is a sense of discomfort, a feeling of in, of uneasiness which consists particularly in fear of loss, something that overtakes us when we have done or suppose we have done something immodest. That immodesty can pertain to various things. Uh, a person is ashamed about something that should have remained behind the curtain of modesty and purity, something that has nevertheless been observed by others. A person is ashamed about something committed in violation of mores, customs, and forms of decency Um, you know he says a young person is frequently ashamed in front of his friends on account of the good good impulses arising from conscience now that connection I, i just now noticed this in my second reading between shame and conscience is important and helpful because he makes this kind of distinction between shame being like a bodily external thing and conscience being like of your you know pertaining to your soul uh, or your spirit, versus shame being a bodily uh, impulse arising from conscience. And that helps me make sense of this more. So maybe I won't disagree as much. Maybe I'm just tired. But um, uh, the pious are ashamed before God and others on account of the sins they have committed. Right? You you, you get embarrassed by something and you, your face turns red. Uh, that's, you know, embarrassment or shame. Um, now that in that case, that it, well, I guess there could be a distinction between embarrassment and shame to some extent. I mean, embarrassment may or may not be like you've done something wicked and immoral. You know, you may have just uh, spilled something, you know, or fallen over in front of a bunch of people, kind of a, you know, one time in the bowling alley, my lovely friends, uh, you know, pantsed me, pulled my pants down, and uh, that was quite embarrassing. But, you know, high school fun times, and uh i basically laughed it off but there was a little bit of you know embarrassment shame in that even though i was in that case pretty much an innocent victim who uh got pantsed anyway um, (laughs) but you can also do very wicked and shameful things and 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 experience a a, a shame uh coming from a conscience a a conscience that has experienced rightly you know guilt uh for what you've done you know, you can you should be ashamed of yourself uh, when you um, disrespect somebody, when you're mean and unkind in the sense of just berating them and not, you know, doing it to teach them or be you know strong and firm with them to correct them out of love uh, or to uh, protect others who are hearing somebody speak lies or heresies or, you know, protecting somebody who's being just absolutely reckless or whatever. Um, I remember a long time ago, uh, a kid in my family at the time he was a kid. Um, sadly, his it was like, I don't know if it was Christmas Day or what, but it was snowing. Uh, and we didn't get a lot of snow in North Carolina. But uh, his little dog had ran out into the road. And sadly, a car was coming by and smushed the dog. And it was just such a surreal experience. I was throwing the football in the yard with my dad and a few of my other friends, cousins, and so on. You know, and the kid sees his dog like getting ran over across the, uh, you know, the field, and so he just runs out there. And I just it was just like crazy because everybody saw it happen. I just remember my dad yelling. My dad always being the rational one, you know, get out of the street, get out of the street, because you know his concern was that uh, my cousin would it'd be an even greater tragedy, you know, if another car came by and didn't see him in the middle of the road while he was bent over his dog um and got ran over. So you know, should you experience some kind of embarrassment or shame because somebody's yelling at you there? Well, you know, that's kind of a complicated situation. You're concerned about your dog. Um, but a reckless endangerment is an entirely different matter, right? If I'm just, you know, uh recklessly driving in the wrong lane in oncoming traffic just to scare people or play chicken or scare my passenger, and they berate me, yeah, that's, that's shameful uh, conduct, right? You know, you shall not murder, Well, you're putting lives at risk by doing that kind of thing. Um, if a woman dressed immodestly, she should be ashamed of that. If a man talks sexually explicitly about a woman uh, inappropriately, you know, that is that is inappropriate and that that's a shameful thing and you should be ashamed of that and 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 that shame that bodily you know response should emanate from a a conscience pricked you know by the holy spirit of of that sin and it's interesting right Uh, adam and eve they notice they're naked and they're ashamed and there's something connected to that guilty conscience and that bodily nakedness and they understand that innocence is lost, and we must cover ourselves up. And Bobin goes on to talk about how our clothing is a covering, separating us from the animals, and simultaneously a blessing and a curse. It's a blessing because it hides our shame. It, it, it is a sign of the coming covering of our sin in Christ Jesus. But it's also a curse, and that it's a constant reminder of our sin. So we're separated from the animals. We're blessed to be forgiven, but we're also cursed in that we are clothed now, and it's a constant reminder of. Of Yeah, shame, bodily shame, sin, guilt. You know, if everybody's walking around naked, (laughs) there'd be a tremendous number of problems with that. It's it's just laughable or kind of weird to even think about. But the sexual issues that would come from that, just the physical bodily issues in this cursed world where the earth is cursed now, you need bodily protection for your more sensitive parts uh, from the elements of the world. I mean, there's so many things that you know we just have to cover up and put layers on us now because there's sin there's there's decay and there's shame and agony and and all of these things and so it's not like we you know the the hobbits in the shire i mean they're clothed too but you know even that great close connection with nature there's a disconnect now and we have to you know live in buildings live in our homes and and just be separated from nature because there's danger and and all of these things have been a result of the fall of man and sin. And um, man, there's a lot that we could say about that, but I'm getting all over the place quickly here, which is not something I want to keep going down. So um, let's see what else Bavink has to say here. Uh, he just noticed that nakedness is not the d- deepest source of their shame, right? And we kind of touched on that already. Uh, they had this sense of guilt within for, for their rebellion um, and that ends up manifesting itself firstly in their nakedness, which makes sense. I mean, if you go from being an innocent, sinless person, and all of a sudden you wake up, as things are today, sinners, and you, Adam, are looking at Eve, and Eve looking at Adam, and you're both naked, and you know what you've done, and that sort of moment of realization has come upon you, yeah, probably one of the first things you're going to do, even though you're man and wife, is is cover up right you know we've probably you've probably had those dreams i've had them i've talked to some people they've had them other people like i have no idea what you're talking about but where you have this dream and you're in school and you're either naked or at the very least in your underwear you somehow got there you're a kid your mom didn't see you nobody saw you like get into the classroom with little to no clothing on but now you're sitting there in your seat and you just you It dawns on you that you're naked and nobody notices. Everybody is, you know, studiously writing uh, whatever assignment they have. The teacher's, you know, looking at the whiteboard, the chalkboard, or sitting reading a book and it's like, what am I going to do? How am I going to get out of here? Put some clothes on. What if somebody looks at me? There's this shame. And, uh, you know, maybe something like that is going on with Adam and Eve here. And if you've never experienced that, dream or something like that or something like that in reality i guess i don't know how to describe it for you but in the moment of that dream when it seems real it's such a horrifying thing such a shameful thing to be sitting there in class like that anyway um yeah animals know no shame bovink says the devil even less Um, shame is unique to humanity to fallen humanity disobedient to god's command something that humanity also senses and recognizes. Shame is a sign of an awakened conscience, that human capacity which pronounces a person guilty and condemns him. You know, I believe it's that one book, The Grace of Shame. I think Tim Bailey and another author who escapes me co-wrote it. Uh, And I've not read it, sadly. I should, uh, because the title is spot on, The Grace of Shame, and it's dealing with Um, I believe in particular, the shame of homosexuality, but wedding that to the idea that there's a grace in shame, there's a healthiness in shame. There are things we ought to be ashamed of. You know, the scripture talks about at times how you people, God's people have forgotten how to blush. There's a problem when we can't feel shame. Our conscience is sheared at that point. That's a dangerous place to be. The deceitfulness of sin has uh, seared our conscience. And maybe something very quickly like that is happening in the garden when Eve fell and Adam fell. That that radar that should be going off in them was, was diminishing as, as the temptation before them was overwhelming them to be like God, to know good and evil, so on and so forth. Um, what, what does that teach us? We have, we've got to constantly be on our guard, men and women, studying the Word, showing ourselves approved, praying watching over our own souls bearing one another's burdens exhorting and encouraging one another rebuking reproving re- reproving with all long suffering and patience you know all, all those verses in scripture that speak to that we have to be doing that and uh if we don't we will become desensitized to our own sin and the sin of the world because it's all around us and and to some degree or another we have to realize that we are desensitized to it uh, if we weren't, and our, then our consciences would be, you know, firing on all cylinders and our shame would be all over the place and we'd be repenting all the time and then growing in holiness and then with the plank out of our own eye, would be better, you know, equipped to help others as well. So, Bob, goes on. Uh, shame has been described not without cause as the body's conscience, both conscience and shame, demonstrate the brokenness and disintegration of human existence the disharmony of human life the distance between what a person ought to be and what a person really is and you know i've had experiences of conviction of sin and shame or sorrow but i can just remember one time i won't go into all the reasons why i was doing this and saying this but i had been a very bad person for a good while my junior year in high school over a relationship matter i will say Um, a breakup, and um, I was just being nasty to this girl, as in mean, harsh, unkind. You know, she had treated me terribly, and I returned evil for evil. And then finally, the, the, the mother of this lady called my mother. My mom was upset and reprimanded me again, and she knew how this was going, and it was upsetting her, and everybody was upset. But at that moment, it just, God convicted me, and it was like night and day, and my Bitterness melted away into just absolute repentance. I just bawled like a baby for a long, long, long time. And I was ashamed because it came to the point where my own mother was getting a phone call about this. And what was trying to be kept somewhat behind closed doors out of the eye of my parents and other people about how bitter and, and you know, my physical health was affected by this. I was so upset with, with being dumped by this girl. Um Trying to keep that out of the eye of my parents and then just for it to, to to be put forward where it was kind of like yeah I know they already know about it but it's this elephant in the room and now the floodgates are open and my mom's sad and crying about it in a good and healthy way for me it tore me to pieces and I just remember crying and crying and crying and you know when you cry like this you kind of knee-jerk reaction you cover your face And I mean you, you look pitiful but there's, there's a, a natural sense of shame. I must cover myself. You know, we fall on our faces. We will and we should fall on our faces in the presence of the Almighty God. You know, Isaiah, woe is me for I'm a sinful man and dwell amid sinners and my lips are unclean and all this kind of stuff. And it's just you, you fall on your faces in worship and respect and, and out of a sense of uh, even of shame, of 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 your wickedness and of what you are and of your creatureliness before God and I you know at that moment in my life as a junior in high school I felt such shame and I grabbed onto my dad laying in my bed and he held me and I'm I'm not a kid I'm like 16 17 years old right this isn't like a five year old I just remember crying and saying I'm such a terrible person over and over and over again. And then, you know, all that month, God just washed it away and, and changed me so drastically, so quickly there. Um, you know, there is a grace in shame. There is. There really is. And we need to remember that. And if, if it didn't, you know, by God's grace, eventually I would have repented if I'm a genuine Christian. The spirit would have convicted me somehow, some way. But, you know, thank God for this lady's mother and for my mother. Um for that happening my goodness i mean because i was being terrible and even if some people would say well you know you were treated terribly i was but it didn't justify my react my response either and uh just we need that shame and i you know i just shared that personal tidbit because it just is it's the thing i can most relate to and one of the biggest things i can relate to in my life describing it and uh this shame you can imagine that adam and eve felt and experienced in their fall knowing also probably having some sense of the ramifications of it for the whole human race and creation itself oh the shame but then the grace of God and the grace in that and he covers them and he clothes them and though he punishes them and, and and the snake is you know the serpent is punished he crawls in his belly the earth and creation is going to bear thorns and thistles for the man and by talks about now how each curse is um, for the man is related to him and his role as a man in his being a man. is not a role; it's what he is, right? And for the woman as well. And being a woman, the woman is cursed in childbearing. The woman is cursed in rearing children. There's a pain in that. What is supposed to be the greatest blessing and her highest crowning uh, uh, gift is the gift of life. Eve is, you know, pertains to life and you know, living and living one and is going to be the bearer of all the living. It's now mingled so much with pain, and in some ways even shame. I mean, you know, there's there's nakedness in the birthing room, there's pain, there's blood, uh, and yet there's life. And so God didn't say, I'm gonna cut off the human race, it's gonna continue, but through blood, through pain, and through shame. And man, by the sweat of his brow, is going to, you know, bear crops, and harvest, but they're going to be smaller, and it's going to be with much pain and toil, and maybe even embarrassment because it doesn't go so well, and difficulty all mixed together. <clears throat> Let's go back to Bavink. Um, yeah, Eve was punished not only as a human being, but particularly as a mother and wife, something that reveals a divine ordinance. Um, she's punished uh, in her calling, right? She is punished. Uh, in that she is a mother since that which was to have been a wife's greatest delight would become her greatest pain. Um, And yet she remains a woman. She remains the life giver. She's still confirmed in that calling. It's just much more difficult now, just as it is for the man. And the man is punished similarly. uh, It says for even as she with respect to him so he with respect to her has lost his freedom his independence his self-direction slave of his longings he becomes slave to the woman in order thereafter to avenge his humiliation and self-debasement and angry tyranny driven to the man through her own desire the woman seeks with her wiles to enchant him or she bows down or sorry she bows like a slave under his feet slavery and tyranny are the sins to which the mutual relationship of man and woman have been consigned and exposed since the violation of god's ordinances so you got slavery and tyranny so there's uh, things are just off kilter basically is what bovink is saying the woman either tries to marry the man to subvert the authority of the man and overthrow the man and his authority with her seductions with her temptations with manipulations, sexual manipulations, even uh, passive aggressiveness, all sorts of ways, and the man may respond to that with a tyrannical suppression of the woman, or you may have a more faithful woman and just a straight-up tyrannical man who's not um, leading well but leading harshly, not for the good of his wife but for some sick, selfish pleasure. And at least in this chapter, I don't see Bob say it as much, but I think even more prevalent in our day, uh, we see just the opposite. Uh, Well, not the opposite per se, but where men abdicate their authority, they become the slaves to the woman gladly, and the woman gladly takes on the role of the authority. And, you know, the unbelievers in the world would say, well, what does it even matter? Uh, if it's functionally working the same if there's a head one head and one serving you know I remember uh, an atheist friend of mine years ago saying something like I don't mind being a uh, uh, not a housewife but uh, basically doing the duty of a housewife of working and folding laundry and stuff and I just kind of laughed and I'm like you know what (laughs) Like okay you think you can do that as well as a woman? Like you, you can try to be as womanly as possible, but it's still not going to work the same way. And the same for the woman trying to take charge. And so um, it just doesn't it doesn't work. Sin has busted things and messed them up, and messed them up for the children as well. Uh, the man's punishment we've talked about that some already, so I won't really read Bob Vink. Um, he just says only by uh, only in this way, by the sweat of his brow, can the man keep himself alive along with his family and the entire human race from now on, hunger and love drive him restlessly onward um, Let's see what else he so Bobwink makes this point about initially you know woman is called woman." <laughs> Uh, Manneen, which I'm sure that's not how you pronounce it, but I believe that's Dutch for woman, Uh, because she was taken from the man and was given to him as a helpmeet. Now she will bear the name of Eve, Mother of the Living, because the woman gives way to the mother, and her assistance to the man is now rendered as the one who bears and nurtures children. Now i got to say, I'm not entirely sure where Boving's going with that statement. Um... I believe that he recognized you know prior to the fall the call to be fruitful and multiply is given and that Eve the woman would be the bearer of children uh again maybe somebody who's read this or can think through this more or read the book themselves can can leave a comment when i post this online uh but this almost reads like you know Eve, just after the fall, becomes mother, or most centrally identified with mother. Now, you know, the egalitarian feminist-leaning people would really probably not like that. Um, But I'm not necessarily inclined to agree with Bavic, if that's what he means here. And it may not be. Um, I mean, my wife helps me, especially by having children. We've had five and seven years, and we're aiming for more. Spoiler alert, um <laughs> but you know she does a whole lot of other things for me as well. A helpmeet in the whole sense in, in the full sense of that word. And um I don't see a fundamental change uh from woman giving way to mother. My wife is a woman and a mother. Uh she's a helpmeet still. Um so I you know, I'm not entirely sure. What Bobbing is driving at there. Um, but let's continue. We're almost done, actually. Um, second to last paragraph. Furthermore, humanity retains the task entrusted to it at the beginning of creation. Humanity continues to be called to fill the earth, to subdue it, and to exercise dominion. Even though humanity can answer this calling in no other way than partially and through fearsome struggle, this Uh, This trouble-filled labor is in itself a blessing because it maintains humanity in in its exaltedness above nature and preserves humanity in the face of spiritual and moral defeat. Finally, there lies embedded within these punishments also the promise that God will accompany humanity along its difficult journey and will strengthen and support humanity in fulfilling its calling. For Eve is the mother of life. And of course, we all agree with that, should. She carries life in her womb, the life of humanity, the life of the seed of the woman. That promised seed in the Proto-Evangelion, the seed of the woman crushed the head of the serpent. Um, And that's Jesus crushing Satan, overcoming sin and all of his wicked seed. And we are redeemed and, yes, brought to true saving spiritual life in Christ again. She's the mother of the living in that real sense, right? Because as temptation uh, and the fall of man came through Eve, the woman first before the man, likewise, redemption first comes through the woman, Eve, or not Eve, Mary, (laughs) and then the man, Christ Jesus, right? So there's a a parallel there. Uh, And so Whoever thinks, you know, patriarchal, the patriarchy denies the importance of women, it's just nonsense. It's just simply nonsense. Yes, woman was quite critical, sadly, in, in, in tempting Adam and leading us into sin, but without woman, there would be no God-man Christ Jesus either. And so. Her own sin is covered through Christ, through God himself coming into her womb. And she, the woman, will be saved through childbearing, as scripture says. And so Bobbing kind of touches on that. For Eve is the mother of life. She carries in her womb the life of humanity, the life of the seed of the woman. The woman will be saved through bearing children. In her womanly and motherly calling, she will display her most beautiful and most elegant virtues. Not not only, but Mary, the one blessed among women, will also repair Eve's offense. In the son born from her, the woman and the man once again attain to their calling. For in Christ, the servant of the Lord, not only does the labor of his soul restore the truth and achieve reconciliation, but also overcomes the world. To Adam and Eve, with their offspring, the holy family of Joseph, Mary, and the child form the divine counterpart. Um, and that's how he closes the chapter. I'm not again. Some of these, I'm scratching my head a little bit. Like the, the the divine counterpart, that would need some further explanation for me to really be comfortable with that, or to know even what he's saying. I mean, I get it. Jesus Christ, the God-Man, came from Mary, uh, a, a virgin birth, and Joseph is 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 the earthly father, but you know, not a biological father. I get there's a uniqueness there. There's a counterpart. Uh, to Adam and Eve in the fall with its offspring and so on. If that's all that's being said, then, then yeah, that makes sense. Um, so I, overall, I don't think there's anything too controversial here. Maybe just a few uh, applications or developments that I would be a little bit more cautious on. Um, but I, I think this is a helpful chapter, relatively short, but it's laying the the... The groundwork of, of, you know, look, here's what happened. Here's what man and woman is, and then here how they, here's how they were affected in and through the fall. And that kind of gets us to, you know, here's where we are today uh, in this fallen world, but we're still men and women, right? And uh, after Genesis 3, um, things are kind of continuing in many respects in this fallen world as they are uh, until Christ returns again and makes all things new. And so the third chapter will be called the family among the nations. Um, and he's going to talk about the ravaging of the family through sin uh, and develop that further. And I haven't read it yet, but certainly looking forward to it. So I I think we can almost wrap up here. I, like I said, I'm tired. I'm sorry. I, I know I'm stumbling over my words a bit more on this and not saying as much and rambling a bit more. Um, but... I think it's I think we're getting to a good place here where we kind of have the foundation laid now and we can start seeing you know if you, if you embrace those foundations now it's just going to be a matter of applying that consistently and correctly throughout and I expect to see Bhavin do that in the remaining uh, eight chapters here and it's so important for us today uh, to to get this right I mean look at our culture look at how um, so many are having literal sex change operations and if they don't go that far they still say you know you can be what you want to be or there's multiple you know many genders or you know there's genderless people so-called the the absolute chaos in this most fundamental area is breathtaking and as I think I said at the beginning in the first recording going over the introduction I mean, this really is, I believe, more fundamental than than Calvinism or Arminianism or Calvinism and whatever, you know, Lutheranism or something, some other uh, stream of Christianity that is true Christianity. I mean, I hold to the Reformed faith, you know, as tight-fistedly as you possibly really can. And I think you're severely impoverished as a Christian if you don't believe in the sovereignty of God and election and... Uh, that we are dead in trespasses and sins until we are regenerated and only after we are regenerated do we have faith. And I think if you don't understand covenant theology, I know I was impoverished when I didn't understand that and the richness and beauty of that. And I think the covenant itself is another great lens through which we have to see the family as well. But I would all day take uh, a conservative Christian who maybe differs on some aspects of, of, of Calvinism with me, but still knows what a man is and what a woman is. I mean, come on. <laughs> uh, that's where we're at, where we have so-called reformed Christians, men and women, who are getting this all kinds of ways wrong and confused. The gay but celibate Christian. You can have women pastors and preachers and teachers or everything but you know an ordained uh, minister. A woman can be everything else. Everything an unordained man can be. And essentially mimic and mirror teaching and preaching, but just as long as it isn't, you know, actually that from the pulpit on Sunday, it's it's, it's absolutely fine. There's no danger here. There's nothing wrong with this, um, you know. And just really confusing the sexes, you know. When God made us male and female in the beginning, He wanted us to remain male and female and to to lean into that, in a righteous and good way. And instead, we're leaning away from that, uh, and that's the danger in the camp of even reformed Christian churches. Uh and, and and certainly in other evangelical churches as well. But no wonder, because look at it how crazy it is in the world and and in the nation. The only way we're gonna get that right is by starting getting it right in the churches. Until then we can just kiss our culture, our our society goodbye. I think Trump overall has been used mightily by God and he's not a flawless man by any by any measure. Don't misunderstand me. But the corruption that's being exposed there, I'm very thankful for that. But if there's not true regeneration and new life in Christ and going back to the basics of what a man is and what a woman is, right? It's like, gentlemen, this is a football. Gentlemen, this is a man. Gentlemen, this is a woman. And going back to those basics and, and rediscovering them or, or refreshing ourselves on them and teaching others and rebuking those who are denying it. Um, if we don't get that right, Like I said before, if we don't get this right, it's hard to get anything right. And anything else you do get right, for the most part, it's not going to matter. Because you don't know what a man or woman is. All right, let me wrap with that. Thank you for listening. We'll cover chapter three next time.